Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Job, chapter 38. I want to thank uh, John and Dan for speaking uh, while we were away. Uh, Someone told me that I didn't have to do the book of Job anymore, that Dan had finished it last week. Uh, But we're glad for his speaking, and not in a theoretical way, but in the suffering and the death of his two sisters, and how the book of Job uh, applies in that regard. It's been several weeks since I spoke from Job. And so just to review a bit, chapter 38 begins, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And it begins the last portion of the book of Job uh, in which God addresses him directly. Uh, Let me just say parenthetically, this is an amazing passage of scripture, something to which the whole study that we've done thus far has pointed toward. Um, Yet, I think that the passage is intended almost to be overwhelming by its very nature. And when we break it down and and do it verse by verse, uh, I think we may lose some of its power. And uh, I remember the last time I spoke feeling somewhat frustrated that uh, some of the the force of this passage sort of got dissipated uh, in the sermon. And I trust that uh, God, by his Holy Spirit, will drive home to our hearts really the force of this passage. In breaking his silence, God fulfills Job's deepest desire. Job's desire is that God would speak. You may remember that at the very beginning, when Job sort of let out this primal scream, he says, the thing I have feared most has happened to me. And it wasn't the loss of his possessions. It wasn't the loss of his children. It wasn't the loss of the support of his wife and friends. It was the loss of God himself. That is, that God was no longer speaking to him, or if he was, Job wasn't hearing him. uh, And and he was afraid of this. And then it seemed that it had happened. And now, uh, after challenging God, uh, Job has sort of waited for God to speak, and now God speaks. But not because he has been forced by Job, in a sense, calling him out. But he speaks to Job out of concern for his servant. As we noted The last time I spoke, when God speaks in in these chapters, he ignores Job's complaints. He does not address them at all. He does not respond to Job's claims of innocence. Uh, He does not correct Job. Job, you're guilty of wrongdoing. Instead, what we have basically is a teacher teaching his student. But teaching him, I think, in a way that the student does not anticipate. It is as though Job were asking questions in this particular area and finally waits for the teacher to speak. And when the teacher does, he addresses him in an entirely different area altogether. He doesn't answer his questions. He doesn't deal with it at all. He simply really asks a series of questions and and opens up the nature of creation 
I think to make a point that if Job will get the point, that in fact will answer these questions. I think it is much more indirect than what Job would want or what we are comfortable with. What we find is that God takes care of his creation. And therefore, he will take care of Job. There are two speeches or two discourses. Uh, after each one, Job is sort of challenged, you know, you know, speak up. You know, you, you called me out. I'm not speaking to you. What do you have to say? And Job uh, ultimately will repent for the terrible things he has said. At the start, I think three points should be made, and they're found here in this very first verse, but we need to keep them with us as, as we finish out the book of Job. First of all, the first point is that God comes and God speaks. Uh, I think the most significant thing is that God speaks. He makes himself known. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book, He is there, he is not silent. And indeed, we see that God is there and God is not silent, and he speaks to Job. When God speaks to people, when it's really God speaking, not some, some person's imagination, his presence is almost overwhelming. And what God does, if you wish, is he tones it down. He turns it down because <clears throat> if God were to appear to us in all his glory, we would be consumed. We would be totally destroyed by it. If you read the Old Testament particularly, but also the book of Revelation, whenever God appears to people, they're on the ground almost dead. His presence is so overwhelming. But here God comes and he speaks in a way that Job can understand and he speaks to him. Secondly, God speaks out of the storm. Some translations have out of the whirlwind. This is not unusual in the Old Testament that God appears uh, within the context of powerful forces of nature. If you wish, Guy and I were last week, God would be speaking out of the typhoon. As you see the wind blowing and just sheets of rain coming down and trees being blown, that within that context, God would speak. That in the context of his power being seen in creation, God would speak. These forces of nature are intended to do two things. First of all, to show the power of God, but also to conceal the glory of God. As we were driving through this typhoon, the worst they've had in five years, at certain points you couldn't see a hundred yards in front of you. Well, that would almost be perfect uh, for God to appear because the rain, in a sense, would conceal the very glory of God, lest it overwhelm us in our humanity. The third thing we see in this first verse is that the name Jehovah or Yahweh is used for the first time since the first chapter. This name is used. It is the name that God revealed to Moses. It reveals God as a covenant God. The rest of the book, you may remember, God is referred to as God the Almighty or El Shaddai. That's not a bad name for God to have, the Almighty. Okay. But what it has done is it has allowed Job's friends to speak of God in a very detached and distant way. The Almighty One. Uh, the All-Merciful One, if you wish. But it's still someone over there. Whereas if you say Jehovah or Yahweh, this is a God who entered into contract, into covenant with His people. It becomes very, very personal. But the friends, in a sense, have made God impersonal. And as one author points out, 
they got used to using God's name, which originally spoke of grace in a way that denied grace. But now God is ready to speak and he addresses Job, interestingly enough, not the friends, the friends he will speak to briefly at the end. But the purpose of these chapters is for Job. God takes the initiative. He begins by challenging him with a question and then a command. He says, if you look in verse number two of chapter 38, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, you know, it's almost as though Job has painted graffiti on the wall, if you wish, of God's wisdom, of God's counsel. He's added his own little bit there and in the process has darkened, has sort of ruined God's counsel. And as I mentioned before, with words, without knowledge. Job has been using words, but he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. So now God calls Job's insight into question. But as I point out, he does not minimize his moral integrity and he does not diminish him as a human being. One of the things that we tend to do as human beings when we get into arguments, particularly if we're losing the argument, is we begin to call each other names. You notice that? And the names are not usually flattering. Oftentimes we go to the animal kingdom to pick a name for whoever it is that we're opposed to. Uh, Bildad, the final comforter to speak, did precisely that. If you remember, uh, he referred to Job as a maggot, as a worm. That's the way human beings do it. We diminish the person in their humanity. We make, make them less than human. God doesn't do this. If anything, he exalts Job to says, hey, you're a human being. You're made in my image. I want to talk to you. And that's precisely what happens. He says to Job, brace yourself like a man. Uh, other translations have gird up your loins. In other words, tighten your belt, Job, because you're in for a, a rough ride. I'm going to teach you some things and hopefully you will learn through the process. God says to Job, I will question you. You will answer me. This is the reverse of what Job had said. Job had said earlier, OK, God, come on. You know, you're going to be. The witness, I'm going to be the prosecution. I'm going to ask the questions. You give the answers. Or if you want, you ask the questions, I'll give the answers. And God basically says, okay, I'll ask the questions. You give the answers. One last thing before we get back into this. I think it is important for us to understand that this passage is not an attack on Job. Okay. They're not. They might be read that way, but that's not how they're intended. They are, in fact, uh, teaching sessions in which God is speaking to someone he loves dearly. Someone he has said about several times to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And I think we need, as we read this passage, that we don't think that, that God is playing hardball and really going to give Job a rough time. This is a man he loves. And someone he wants to teach. The last time I spoke, we looked at the first 24 verses here of chapter 38, in which God deals with the beginning of things, the structure of things, how everything started. And now in the passage we will look at today, beginning in verse 25 through the end of chapter 39, uh, the maintenance of the world. To review quickly, we saw that God used three metaphors to describe himself with regard to creation. 
that he was the master builder, someone who laid the foundations, that he was a midwife, someone who gave birth or helped give birth to the seas. Uh, I think a wonderful picture. And then uh, he uses the metaphor of a military commander, someone who commands the light to shine. And he asked Job, have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you ever gotten up before dawn and said, "Okay, son, come on up. It's time. It's time for dawn. This is something that God does every day. He is the commander of the universe. On the first day of creation, God said, let there be light. He commanded and it happened. And every day since then, I think, is a reminder that God created the world and that he continues to work in the world. And then we saw uh, not only the beginning of the world, but the parts of the world that are, well, I have in my notes the extremities, but the vastness of creation that is illustrated in the depths of the sea, of the distant east, that is where the sun comes from, and the skies. And as I mentioned, I think we find this passage somewhat less intimidating because with modern scientific method, we've measured things. Um, the sea seems a little less vast, at least theoretically. You know, we, we know we've, we've measured it. We've mapped it. Uh, we know where everything is. You know, it's really... I think it's, it's somewhat strange that in our minds, the world is a small place. I think with the discovery of so many things until you actually get out there. And you get out in the middle of the ocean and you discover how vast it actually is. You know, we have GPS now, global position satellites. I mean, where you know where you are. And so the world in our minds seems small. Till you get out there and you realize how vast it is. I think it is our arrogance, our ignorance as well, that imagines that we know more than we actually do. Today we begin in verse number 25, in which God continues and he moves from the origins of creation to the maintenance or the sustaining of creation. But I want to be careful because, and this is my frustration in dealing with this, God speaks this as one speech to Job. And now here we are sort of dissecting it and outlining it so we can get our minds around it. And in the process, we might sort of draw lines where lines don't belong. So I've said that this has two parts, the creating of the world and then the sustaining of the world. But when we talk that way, and the church has been doing this for centuries now, what we do is we, we sort of put a wall between the week of creation and then everything since then. And so in the 18th century, you have the rise of deism, which believed that God created the world as this really complicated clock and sort of wound it up. And, and now the clock sort of works on its own. Jesus said, uh, you know, when he was asked, why are you healing on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. We shouldn't imagine that God created the world in six days and he hasn't been doing anything since. And I like the way that this passage actually sort of goes from creation to sustaining, but it isn't sort of, OK, the end of God's creation. Now it's all maintenance work since then. Uh, and and the thing that is used to do to make this transition is that of weather. Look, if you would, let's read verses 25 uh, to the end. Well, we'll get to verse number 38 here in chapter 38. Um, 
Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? To water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations and their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heavens, of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? When the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together. Wonderful poetic language speaking of how God works in his creation. Dealing, beginning with the issue of weather. In verses 8 through 11, which we looked at the last time I spoke, God is presented as the midwife, one who helps give birth to the seas. Now we see God implied as the father of rain, dew, the implied mother of ice and frost. He speaks of the harshness of weather in verses 22 through 24, snow, hail, lightning and wind, and continues in verse number 25. So our division there, I think, is is very arbitrary. It speaks of the torrents of rain and thunderstorms. By the way, when Guy and I were in the Philippines on a number of nights, there were rather significant lightning and thunderstorms, something that we don't have here that often. Uh, and I think a wonderful reminder of, of God's power. The lesson in this particular passage is this. It is that God is in control of what he has created. Both the inanimate aspects of his creation as well as the animate or the living parts of his creation. There's so much that we could say about this particular passage, beginning in verse 25 through 28. Uh, I think one thing, though, that really stands out to me in my studies, uh, an illustration was given that a panel of economists on a TV show were being interviewed. And the final question to them was, what is the greatest influence on the world economy? And all of them answered with one they all agreed on this one thing. What is the greatest or what has the greatest influence on the world economy? The weather. The weather. And, and who would have thought of such an answer? For all our attempts to manage the economy, markets, stock markets, to, you know, to control and guide the economy, the reality is there's a factor which is completely outside our ability, outside our control, the weather, which determines prosperity and recession, deficits, and surpluses. And we're not in control. But God is. God made the world, and he is in control of his world. And it is not that he controls some giant mechanism that he made, and every once in a while he has to go in there and tinker with it. Uh, that it's running on its own, and every once in a while, you know how if your TV doesn't work or your computer, you have to sort of bang it to get it going. No. God is always at work in his creation. And it's put so wonderfully when it's, uh, we're told uh, about Pleiades uh, being bound 
and Orion being loosed. Almost getting a picture of God letting the stars out at night and then bringing them back in in the daytime. And, and someone would say, well, Damon, that's ridiculous. You know, that's not scientific. We know the stars stay there. Uh, I think the world is vast, much larger than we realize that it is. And God is in control of his creation. He lets out the bear with her cubs. This speaks of uh, Ursa Major, uh, one of the constellations, stars that are billions of years, light years away, or miles away at least. God is in control of them. But what about the animate aspects of his creation? And this I I find really uh, quite wonderful. The last few verses of chapter 38 and then all of chapter 39. We'll do it uh, part by part. But what we see in this passage is that God rules not only, only over the big things, but the small things, if you wish, as well. We come to see that God's creatures are unique While they have this in common, uh, that God created them, they have their own uniqueness. And this uniqueness is illustrated, uh, God here speaks of uh, 10 to 12 different types of creatures and and tells us something perhaps that Job did not know about them. Certainly, we did not know this about them. Uh, Just to let Job have insight that God knows what he is doing. Look, if you would, in verses uh, 39 through 41. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness to satis- and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Begins with two types of creatures, uh, the lion and the raven. And the point here is that God takes care of them. And we wouldn't necessarily think in these terms. We know that lions, and and particularly the lioness, is usually the hunter for uh, the group of lions, for the pride of lions that she's associated with. And we think of her ability to run fast, her strength. But here, God speaks of the lion as being provided for. God provides prey for the lion. What about ravens? Well, ravens are scavengers. They wait till the lions have done their work and there's still meat left on the bones and they go and they pick. Which means God has to provide, pray for the lion, for the lion to get so she can feed her young ones and then leave some left over for the ravens so that the raven can provide for their own young. God provides for them both. For the hunter as well as for the scavenger. God sustains both the strong and the delicate in his creation. And then he continues talking about mountain goats and deer in verse and chapter 39, beginning at verse one. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who takes care of the wild animals when it's time to give birth? Who even knows when it's time to give birth? We know that it's close for Mandy's time. They've been counting the days. Who counts the days for wild animals? Who knows? God does. He's the one who takes care of such things. The first night that Guy and I stayed at her aunt's place, about five in the morning, 
heard this dog crying outside the window. And we thought it was their pet dog. And we're sort of whispering out, you know, Hunter, be quiet. It's five o'clock in the morning. Well, when we finally got up, we realized it was actually Hunter's sister who was about ready to give birth to puppies. And she wanted to come home to be with her sister in order to have her puppies. And so they let her in. And I think about a week later, she had three puppies. Uh, and it, it's, it's wonderful. And it's amazing. How do animals know what to do? I mean, we're supposed to be, well, we are made in God's image. We're supposed to know more than them. And we need doctors and midwives and all these things. And, and animals out in the wild, when it's time, they give birth. And then they raise their young. And as we see here, the young leave home. They don't come back. Who marks on the calendar? Well, it's getting close. It's almost time for those young ones to appear. God does. God takes care of his creation. Then we're told about the wild donkey, beginning in verse 5. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Here, not a domesticated, but a wild donkey. Uh, the domesticated ones serve as a beast of burden. The wild one avoids humans, roams the wilderness, searches for food. And interestingly enough, uh, God describes as a wild donkey as laughing at the commotion in town. All that, all that busyness that's going on in there. I'm out here doing whatever I want. And who takes care of the wild donkey? God does. What about the wild ox? And verse number nine. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The answer to this is no, because he's wild. Now, the oxen that have been domesticated, they are cared for. They are taken care of by the farmer. But what about the wild one? Who takes care of him? God does. And what we see through the rest of this is that God made these creatures all unique. You have the hunter and the scavenger. You have the wild goats and the deer that roam around free. Just a side note, uh, my sisters and I went to the school that we attended from kindergarten for them uh, till we finished high school. And we were on campus just sort of reminiscing and being sentimental. And out comes this wild deer. Apparently, the school is raising wild deer. And it's just amazing to be on the campus where I grew up to see this deer coming out. We are told to take care of God's creation, but there's much of it that we do not. And God does. You have the freedom of the wild donkey the stubbornness of the wild ox who will not be tamed. And then you have the foolishness of the ostrich. Uh, look, if you would, beginning in verse number 13. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot might crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers, she cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. 
Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. I think such a wonderful picture of God creating uh, his creatures. But they're not all that smart. Uh, the ostrich certainly is an example of a foolish type of animal. An animal that lays its eggs, big eggs in the sand, forgets where they are, sometimes accidentally tramples them and destroys them. Uh, doesn't, ostrich, not, they don't make really good mothers. They don't take care of this. And yet, you know, we still have ostriches around. Um, she has wings, but that's not like a stork. You know, a stork flaps its wings and it flies. The ostrich gets really excited and flaps its wings and nothing happens. It can't fly. And yet, when it's time to run, an ostrich can outrun a horse. What we see in this list of things that are given is that God has given his creatures gifts as well as flaws, graces and faults, charms and handicaps. We'll, we'll finish up in a bit, but the one question I think that God wants us to ask is, who would make such a world? Who would make such a world that has such a variety of animals? I'm convinced that if a human being was put in charge of creating the world, it would be a very boring place. It might be efficient as such, but it would not be the wonderful place that God has made. Certainly no human being would ever create an ostrich. And what are they good for? I mean, they have big eggs and uh, apparently ostrich meat is good. But, I mean, they don't have good mothering instincts. This, uh, no, I, I think we're going to leave that one in the, you know, we're not going to do that one. God has included them all in his creation. Let's finish reading up the chapter. A wonderful description of, of horse, uh, horse and their power. Beginning in verse 19. Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength, and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, Aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom or spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. His young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there he is. See, God created his creation some with unpredictability, others with freedom, some with stubbornness, foolishness in the case of the ostrich, courage, the horse of war, wisdom in the hawk that migrates from one place to another, perspective of the hawk that stays up there and can see for miles and is able to find prey and feed its young. I think the bottom line to this passage is God acts in a way that we would not. Who would create a world with such diversity of creatures and some of them not very smart? 
who would create all these different kinds of flowers that many of them have little or no purpose except to show the glory of God. I think after we're done reading chapter 39, we might have a sense, if I were in charge of the world, this isn't the way it would be. But you know what? We're not in charge of the world. God is. And this is the way he made it to be. And so what does that have to do with Job's suffering? This is God's world and this is the way he made it to be. If I were in charge, I would have never let Job suffer the things that he did. But I'm not in charge. I don't know the things that God knows. I wouldn't have created ostriches. I wouldn't have. But God did and he takes care of them. In the same way, things happen in our lives and we sit down and we say, what's wrong with this picture? This is not the way... This is not the way I envisioned my life turning out. This is not what I anticipated my life to be. God, what are you doing? And if God would answer us, he would answer us with chapter 39. He's the God who feeds the lions and the ravens. He's the God who created the ostrich and the wild donkey that laughs at human civilization. God does things in a way that we would not. And he's God and we're not. And the bottom line is, he knows better than we do. This is not to say that what God brings into our lives is easy. It certainly is not to say that we will understand it. But it is to acknowledge that God is in control. And he knows precisely what he is doing. It may not seem that way at times. Dan spoke of the suffering and the death of his sisters. If I was in charge, I wouldn't let that happen. I'm not in charge. I don't know everything. I don't know what is best. As I said... I wouldn't create ostriches. But God did. God does know. And he will do what is best for us. By faith, we should humble ourselves and trust him to do what is best. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are amazed when we look at your creation. Just see the almost infinite variety and and the glory of it. And yet sometimes wonder if there isn't a certain inefficiency to your your creation, that there's certain creatures that we actually don't need. We don't need all the different colors of flowers, but we're not the creator. You are. You know what is best. And in the same way, you know what is best in our lives. Because sometimes, frankly, the things you allow to happen in our lives and in the lives of others, we don't like. And if we were in charge, we wouldn't let that happen. But we're not. We are your creatures. You are our God. And like Job, we need to be reminded that you're not only in charge of the big things, the constellations that tell us the seasons of the year. You're not only in charge of the weather 
which can do terrible damage. But you also feed the young of the raven. You count the days of the pregnancies of wild deer and wild goats. This is your world and we are your people. We ask for strength. We ask for faith as we go through our lives. Not as mindless robots, but as people who struggle and yet know that their Father loves them deeply and dearly. And He proved this love by sending His Son. May Your Spirit drive home to our hearts the force of this passage. Again, I thank you that we could meet together today to worship. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? God's creatures are to praise his name. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.